This is Our American Stories. And up next, the tale of a disaster in American history, one of epic proportions. And Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Molasses isn't just used for grandma's cookies or for grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company, realizes that he has to build a tank. You see, he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean, and he's got no place to put it. He commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company, and he doesn't pull a building permit. He only pulls a permit for the foundation. Therefore, he's not scrutinized by any inspectors. So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets, and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240-foot circumference, and they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound, and if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weather-wise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses. So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams rolling down the side of the tank. He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Gell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, 
they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria D'Estacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets had no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave was devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stopped. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling. It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank, it was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the Great Molasses Disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread My grandpa's older than the old gray mare he sits a-rockin' in his rockin' chair But now he's got a smile that he can't lose Grandma's sittin' in baby's shoes From eatin' blackstrap molasses and the Ouija bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well-fed I gave up cherry pie and T-bone steak Chicken fricassee and ice cream cake I don't need vitamins or pills at all I even mix it with my hat of call I'm eating blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed my nerves were jumpy and I'd walk the floor I never got to sleep till after four But since I'm eating right I feel okay I'm sleeping every night and half
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, which is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, and all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an unknown hero who died on this day in history. Chris Edmonds thought that he had a great dad, but he also thought that he had a relatively normal one. He was my baseball coach, so he was very active in that, loved baseball, and I think he loved the kids more than anything. So he was our head coach, and my uncle was our assistant coach. He played the good cop. Dad was the good cop. My uncle was the bad cop, so to speak. Chris's dad served in World War II. He had a diary from his time there, although he didn't say much about it or the war. And so Chris didn't know much of anything until... My daughter, who was in college at the time, had done a group report for one of her history classes on dad and had used the diary as some of the narrative for a a little short video that they made. And as I watched that video, they just used the narration was, was just word for word out of Dad's diary. And it was just, I'd read it before, and I, you know, I'd asked Dad when he was living about his experience, and he just never would, would share. Like most, most men of that day, I mean, he said, son, there's some things I'd rather not talk about. But those words just kind of seared into my heart and moved me. And so one night, about midnight, a friend of mine said, you know, they have records military records on on people who've served so maybe you can find out some some things about your dad so i was moved by those words and i also wanted to kind of find out just some basics you know when did he enter the service was it before pearl harbor was it after pearl harbor what units was he assigned to where did he do his basic training i mean i didn't know any of that stuff so i just googled his name and rank on the computer about midnight one night and the first link that comes up which I thought would be maybe the, the National Archives or an Army site or, you know, some military site. Um, it was the New York Times. And Dad's name and rank, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, was embedded in this article that was written in 2008 by the editor. And it was written uh, kind of reflecting back on the story of President Nixon stepping down from the presidency and moving back to New York. And the an article was titled, Richard Nixon's Search for New York Home. And so immediately, I mean, that's highlighted, Dad's name's highlighted. And, and I click on the article, I'm thinking, what is Dad's name doing in this article in New York Times? And what does that have to do with President Nixon? You know, I'm like, this is crazy. So I read the article, and it's basically telling the story of how the president wanted to move to New York. And... No one wanted him to be their neighbor. Nobody could find him any place to live. I think Mr. Rudin was was kind of the Donald Trump of the day. He was the big real estate mogul. He couldn't even find a place for the president to move because nobody wanted him. And it goes on to say that a gentleman felt sorry for the president, basically, and offered to sell his townhouse, which was in a very prominent section of New York, to the president. And the president ends up visiting with all of his family and buying it from him. 
And so in the context of that story, the reporter just asked this gentleman who happened to be Lester Tanner about his life and found out he served in the military and asked about that. And, and basically in the context of that conversation, Lester said, had it not been for the bravery of my Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, um, I wouldn't be here to do what I did. So I read that and I was like, who is Lester Tanner? What did Dad do that was so brave? Or Lester's basically saying, I owe my life to my Master Sergeant. The New York Times left this stunning revelation as a one paragraph mention in their article, almost as if it was an off-topic side story that they had just forgotten to take out in their editing process. I mean, you you would think someone would have read that and go, well, who is this Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds? Let's go try to find out who this guy was. And if it would be anyone, you'd think it would be the same publication that the New York Times would be excited that they might have just stumbled upon a great story. Well, that has crossed my mind many times is, you know, why did they just kind of leave that, you know, for dead, basically, just left it alone? Thankfully, it wasn't uninteresting to Chris. And so he decided to take their job and play reporter. So I began looking for Lester. I've been searching for him and tracked him down finally. It, was, it took me about three or four months. Finally found a phone number and was able to call him and talk to him for the first time. And here's what Lester told him. It was 1944. The 106th Infantry Division had landed in France some 90 days after D-Day. So the division consisted of the 422nd Regiment, the 423rd, and the 424th Regiments. And Dad was in the 422nd. And it was wintertime, so they began a difficult journey across France. The winter was brutal that year. It's one of the worst on record in Germany and Europe. When they reached the Chennai Eiffel, which is just kind of a rugged mountain range in Belgium near the German border, they got there on December 10th. And the soldiers took up their places along that 26-mile front, which was really a thin line of Allied troops protecting that area. And Dad's regiment took the forward position. So when the Germans came through, Dad and his men were at the point of the spear. So they took the first brunt of that heavy assault. Then on the 16th, the 422nd was the first to be surprised by the massive German assault. The Germans had 400,000 troops amassed in that area, 1,600 artillery guns, and 1,200 tanks. And the Allied force, mostly Americans, they had rifles and a little bit of artillery, maybe a few tanks, but they didn't have that kind of firepower. Plus, the 422nd had not seen action, so they were green. So the battle of the began. The Allied forces, they were just greatly outnumbered and outmatched. Dad's regiment was quickly cut off, surrounded, but they continued to fight with all they had. But most of the 422nd were either killed or captured. Dad, in his diary, speaks of stepping outside for a moment and a bullet whistling by his head and embedding into the building just two inches above his head. And he basically says, you know, I, I really thank God that, that he spared me. 
And then later that day, I mean, the battle broke open and Dad and several other men had formed a convoy and was sent by the colonel to try to punch a way out. They thought they'd found a way out and they actually got stopped because the front jeep hit a mine and exploded and blew everybody out of the jeep and they stopped to help and then they were quickly surrounded. He also was ultimately captured along with more than 20,000 GIs during the battle and the men of the 422nd were stripped of their winter clothes. They were forced to march some 50 kilometers over rugged icy terrain to Kerosene, Germany, where they were loaded on the train. They spent the first night in a churchyard in Blayoff, Germany, where the men, they, they basically slept on top of each other in order to stay warm and not freeze to death. They said they, they slept in pyramids on top of each other. There were several men who couldn't march, and if you didn't march, you didn't last. So uh, the ones who couldn't make it uh, were shot or left for dead. And so they were locked in overcrowded boxcars at the train station, standing room only, no food, no water, no way out. These trains were unmarked. My personal opinion is they were unmarked on purpose. They should have had a red cross on the top of the trains to signify to any of the Allied Air Forces that this was a POW train, but they didn't. So all the American boys spent seven harsh days, really between walking and riding in trains, freezing weather, traveling to Stalag 9B, that orb. It was their first POW camp. And they arrived there on Christmas Day. Of course, at Bad Orb, it was one of the worst, if not the worst, German POW camps. There were thousands of American GIs crammed into that camp. They were there for about four weeks and Dad and the other NCOs, non-commissioned officers, were taken and they were sent to Stalag 98 Ziegenhain. So it's at Ziegenhain where Dad became the highest ranking American soldier there. He was responsible for all the Americans in that camp. 1,272 Americans. And what would he do or not do? How would he lead or not lead? All of these men. That story after the break. And we continue with the story of Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. To learn how Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds led these men, most of whom he had never met before they were in prison together, and how he saved Lester Tanner's life, we hear from the person who has a brother because of him, Lester's sister, Corinne. The Germans announced the night before to have all the Jewish prisoners all lined up in the front, and they wanted them all to step out. And the next morning, Roddy Edmonds had all the American soldiers that were under his command to come out in front of the barracks. So there was a large group, close to a 1,000 soldiers, lined up in military formation in front. And when the German commander came out, 
he looked at the group and he said to Roddy, well, they all can't be Jews. About 200 of them were. The other 1,072 soldiers weren't. So Roddy said, we are all Jews here. And he was shocked, the commander, and he put the gun next to Roddy's forehead, next to his head, and he said to him, if you don't have all the Jewish soldiers step out now, then I will kill you right here. And Roddy stood there, and there was a silence, and Roddy said, according to the Geneva Convention, if a soldier is captured, he is only to to give his name, his rank, and his serial number. And then he said, if you kill me now, you have to kill all of us, because we all know who you are. And when the war is over, you will be tried as a war criminal. And when he heard that, the German commander, he just walked away. Her brother Lester, a Jew, survived that day along with the other Jews and was able to come home because of Roddy Edmonds and his courage, his willingness to sacrifice his own life for the lives of others, others who weren't of his same faith. Roddy was a Christian. Lester comes home, and one day, he invites a friend from the war, Paul Stern, over to their family's home. He came over, and my mother had set out the table for them, and they they had lost so much weight, both of them. She had pastries and milk for them to drink, and I was in another room, and when I came out, he tells the story. Paul does. The French doors opened, he said, and she came out, his sister, and I came out, and I met him for the first time, and he said I fell in love with her immediately, and I always added, well, I, I wasn't so sure immediately. And as you probably guessed by now, this wouldn't be the only time that Paul and Corinne would meet. But uh, that was Paul's story. Two years later, we were married. Corinne was able to marry the love of her life because Roddy saved Lester's life, allowing Lester to do something so simple as bring his friend Paul into their home. And then this story gets even stranger. A very interesting part was that when my granddaughter, Diana, was in college... One of her classes, she had to do a project, something concerning a hero of hers. And it was also a program run by a World War II veteran, was a professor. And he wanted, if they had any information or anything related to that. So she had written this report. It was titled, My Grandpa Went to War. So that's when he really started to talk. He didn't really discuss it with the children or grandchildren or with his wife, Corinne, for that matter. 
but his granddaughter opened him up. Maybe he did it just to help her. Or maybe enough time had passed and he was ready. So we have that report. And in that report, he finally did come through with everything and tell the story. The story that he too was saved by Roddy Edmonds. He said that confrontation only lasted a few moments when it actually happened at the POW camp, but he would remember it the rest of his life. And this was also the very first moment that Corinne learned that her brother Lester was saved by Roddy. Neither of them told the story to anyone. Their family only learned of it because of a granddaughter's school project, and the world only learned of it because Lester sold his house to Richard Nixon. You know, in my readings during the years, I came upon the quote that said, if you save one life, if you save one life, you save the world. It's very meaningful because if you really think about it in depth, the fact that he saved these Jewish soldiers, they would have never married, they would have never had children, grandchildren, and my brother has great-grandchildren. I have five grandchildren, no great-grandchildren yet. But when you really think about it, it has a lot of depth to it, and you realize all the people that would have never been here that have produced and have done great things in the world after that. And to close, back to Roddy's son Chris on the animating force in his dad's life that led him to do what he did. He was very active in the local church, but he was also active in uh, a singing ministry that he had. It was just a, he never made any money at it, but he, he sang at a lot of revivals and a lot of church functions. There's one song in particular that I'd heard him sing several times, and it's not a widely known song, but it is a song that he sang several times, and typically he would give a word of testimony before he sang any song he would, but particularly on this one, he would let everybody know he was in World War II, he was a POW, and that's where he felt called to sing for God, because he, he was a man of faith, even as a young man. You know, he surrendered his life to Christ as a teenager. He never told me any of this either. I've just been picking this up through my research and, and talking with folks that knew him growing up. So he came to Christ as a teenager, and he was the real deal. I mean, it, he really followed Christ. I think that's why he stood up for his men in that camp. It, it was a sense of duty as, as being their, their leader, but it was also he had surrendered his life to Christ, and he had already died to Christ and come alive to him. And he, he believed in his heart and his mind. He was never going to die anyway. If he leaves this planet, he's going to go to a better life to be live with his Lord. And so um, he was going to do what was right. He's going to do what God would do. He's going to stand up for his men. And in the face of death, I mean, he'd already died, so you can't do anything more to him. So I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. But this song is uh, called, I'm a Private in the Army of the Lord. I'll just read you a couple of lines to it. Verse 1 is, I have just enlisted in the service of my King, Christ my Lord and King, blessed Lord and King. Tis a royal service, and with gladness now I sing as I march against old Satan's war. 
Jesus is my captain, and he leads me all the while, leads me all the while, leads me all the while. I am not a hero, but I'm in that rank and file. I'm a private in the army of the Lord. And great work, Alex, and thank you to everyone who contributed to this remarkable story. Master Sergeant Roddy, Edmund's story, all of the lives he saved, my goodness, all the lives he saved, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty 
than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa, 
and I slept on the floor next to him, at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance, and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had, and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver.
it was his last best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer, in particular, was the International Admissions Director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions, and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trusty relatives, and Olympic athletes. 
but they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes, an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently. And it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do. And thank goodness. I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sabke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup. And next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter. The older woman evidently had some form of dementia, and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters. After some explaining and finally understanding, the elderly woman proclaimed, You mean I'm a great-grandmother? That's wonderful! Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. 
And it is. And we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. continue here on Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything in life. And we read a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal by Abigail Schreier entitled, Masculine Dads Raise Confident Daughters. To talk about that and more, she joins us now. Abigail, tell us a little bit about your family, how you grew up, and how that began to shape your life. Sure. I was born in Maryland. I have a younger brother, and we grew up in the house of lawyers. So my father was for most of our lives a lawyer, and then he ended up as a judge on the intermediate appellate court. He was the chief judge. And he was, you know, has always been sort of unapologetically masculine, and by which I, of course, do not mean brutish, but I just mean that there was a certain unapologetic masculinity to him. He, of course, held doors for women. He held doors for me. There was never a sense that there was anything wrong with that. In fact, the opposite. There was a sense that there was something wrong with not doing those sorts of things for women. Indeed. Let's talk about, as you were growing up with this, talk a little bit more about your dad, uh, his masculinity, but also his methodologies for raising you and the things he cared about, the things he expected from you. Because here's this traditional masculine father, but obviously he wants to raise a really strong daughter. Right. So my father considered himself a feminist in his own way, by which he meant that he never allowed me to make excuses for failures in conduct or morality. The fact that my feelings were hurt by something was not an important thing. It was one factor possibly to consider, but more importantly, the question was, was I right that my feelings were hurt? Was I right to be upset? And sort of unbridled emotion was never accepted for me in place of reason. And my father thought that, well, my father's always admired women tremendously. And he made that very clear to me. He admired our mother and he admired very much his mother and, and his mother-in-law. And he really thought that strong women were a wonderful and enchanting thing. Part of that was that he expect, he always had high expectations for me. So I was never supposed to be silly and I was never supposed to get away with, you know, bad behavior by crying or anything like that. My father found that all undignified and really unwomanly. He found it childish. And, and he made that clear. I mean, if, if I wanted to prevail in an argument or I wanted to get sympathy, I had to do it by calming down and being reasonable. And so that's what I've, I had always learned was what it meant to be a woman. Certainly, that you know, that, that was the example my mother sent. But in some sense, more importantly, I got that message from my father. And the reason for that is when a young girl's growing up and when I was growing up, you worry about being able to attract men. 
and you worry that you might have to grovel or cry to get attention from men. You see that a lot. And my father, having a masculine example, made it clear that because he considered me an amazing young woman and he made that clear that I never needed to grovel for the attention of men and I never needed to reduce my standards either for my own conduct or for what I expected from other men. I'm going to read a line from this Wall Street Journal piece. He admired smarts less than grit and found surface beauty less enchanting than charm. The woman he admired most was our mother, not for her intelligence or accomplishments, though she had plenty of both, but because of a strength that took his breath away and on which he often relied. Talk about that. My dad always made it clear that he found women to be Remarkable. I think that in many ways, the people he admired most in his life, you know, and it certainly enjoyed most in his life were the various women he had known from women he had been friends with, you know, over the years until the day when he met my mother and then her. And what he admired was a sort of feminine strength and grace and smarts. He always found women more interesting in a certain sense than men. And he made that clear to me that he expected me to be one of them. And it was not because they were sort of picture-perfect gorgeous, but more that they brought a certain grace and intelligence and emotional depth to ideas and an elegance to behavior. That didn't mean, you know, parading around in a sort of hypersexualized way or anything like that, but just carrying oneself with grace and dignity was something that he really admired and found very attractive. You write also, my father's own unapologetic masculinity made us feel secure. Talk about that. Absolutely. My father, you know, he was probably not physically stronger than the average man. He had asthma and and whatnot, but he made it clear that he would do anything to protect us physically if necessary and in any other way. One time years ago, I was being sort of picked on by someone who was sort of a family friend and he was a man at that point and I was still a girl and he pushed me and he said, you know, my father may case if he ever does that again, that will be the last time. And I said, but he's, he's stronger than you, dad. And he said, that doesn't matter because I'm willing to do anything to protect my family. And I knew he was right. And I knew he would prevail for that reason. That was absolutely an essential part of him was the obligation to protect us. That's so well said. And let's talk about one other thing you wrote. If you want to protect girls, find them good parents or become them. And so much is written about fathers and sons and the lack of fathers causing such problems with men forming gangs and all the things that can happen with boys when they don't have a dad. I don't think nearly enough is written about what happens to girls. That's exactly right, because dads have a uniquely potent message for their daughters in terms of what their conduct should be and what they should expect from the men in their lives. The love of a father for a girl, for his daughter, is going to set expectations of a young woman for what is charming, what is lovable, and for what she deserves. One of the things I mentioned in the article was that, you know, I sort of had a Me Too movement moment, as it were, which was that, um, you know, I was propositioned by a professor who's, who's a support I really thought I needed at that time in my career. And the reason ultimately, you know, I, I turned him down was because I was worried that if I lowered my standards, I would disappoint my father. It was not because of my mother's advice, although she had given me plenty, but because he thought I was the most amazing young woman in the world 
And I think that only a masculine dad is credible to a young woman when he tells her she'll be attractive to the right guy. She doesn't have to grovel in front of unworthy guys who will take her for granted just because she would procure some form of male attention. So that is so beautifully said, Abigail, and such an important point. Talk a bit more about how having a strong father for a role model can set up a young woman for lifelong success. And talk a little about the sad flip side of that. Absolutely, it can. It's very important for girls, I think, to see this from their fathers, to not be afraid of it. I mean, right now we're teaching, with all this talk of toxic masculinity, we're teaching girls to be terrified of masculinity, to be terrified, in other words, of half the population. That's not a good thing. You know, women, young women today are not in a psychologically healthy place. In fact, arguably, they've never been in worse shape. The rates of suicide are very high. The rates of, of cutting and depression are, are higher than they've ever been in young women. You know, it's not simply because we're terrifying them of masculinity, but that's certainly one part. It's the opposite of, of helping them to feel safer. I mean, it's no surprise to girls that they're less physically strong than men. They know this. We all know this. If you tell them that men's strength is terrifying, that it is brutal, and that it will always be used against them, that's a really frightening world to live in. Really, we should be encouraging the proper harnessing of masculinity into something virtuous and good. It's a problem that women, you know, that, that people aren't getting married in the same numbers. We know it's a problem for our society. It's a problem for our birth rate. It's a problem for establishing communities in America. But one of the things is that women don't know, young women don't know today what's to be gained in a marriage. They don't know what's to be gained by being sort of the feminine counterpart to a husband. And that's something that really has to be taught in order to be understood and learned. And instead, women are going, I mean, young women today, I think the average age at which which um, kids now see pornography for the first time is 11. And it's terrifying. A huge number of young girls are seeing this. And it is really their first visualization of sex. And it is very violent. It is what looks like a man really violently abusing a woman. This is a message that a lot of young girls are getting. Everywhere they look, from the women's marches, we, they are told that men's sort of primary role in their lives will be to abuse them. That's the opposite of encouraging marriage. And by the way, young boys are told that the sort of great thing that men are known for is abusing women. So both things are really discouraging of marriage, of union, and partially as a result, you're really not seeing as much marriage, you know, unsurprisingly. It's such an awful message for boys and for girls. Abigail, any last words to your father and all the other fathers listening? I would just say thank you to my dad. I mean, he knows, look, I'm in a wonderful marriage, and my father really, really loves my husband, and, and I know that wouldn't, none of that would have been possible. I wouldn't have been the woman who my husband was attracted to. I wouldn't have been strong enough for him, and I wouldn't have waited to find him had it not been for the example of my father. I, I'm very grateful to my dad, and I just hope so many other dads out there expect a lot from their daughters and expect that they demand a lot for themselves in the way that they're treated. And we've been listening to Abigail Schreier, her terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled Masculine Dads Raise Confident Daughters. And it's so true. I'm hoping I'm doing the same with my little girl, Reagan. This is Lee Habib, Abigail Schreier's story, her father's story, here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton and the sport that became a worldwide phenomenon. Frontside 12, perfect. That is the run that he needed, and he put it down. And the score's in. It's the return of the king in the men's half pipe. White takes the goal. Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds. With its own culture, superstars, and equipment, competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin? Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski. Two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, Skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his snurfer. I developed the snurfer on Christmas Day uh, 1965 as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan and always do. Wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis, and I put them together, and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast, and my wife watched us through the window, and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he says, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding the board today. Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966, and in February 1968, he began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer, in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother George was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton. I mean, I was a wise 
and when I was young, and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school, and I went up to see the headmaster, who was a headmaster when my father was there, and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home. And that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. In 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppins National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin. When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like the hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan, north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Panda let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And, and uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started, is, is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing them at the same time. In an interview with Snowboarder Magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980. How'd you get into it? Well, uh, a company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years, and nobody really improved it. And living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, I just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977, when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. 
But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time, and I remember once going out with 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back. Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design. Burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts, who were almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its slopes. And what an insight by Jake Burton. Create demand for your product by inventing an American sport, which he did. And when we come back, more of the story, this entrepreneurial story, this sports story, Jake Burton's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, Subscribe to our newsletter. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995, and professional snowboarder Tina Basich. One of the, the key things I think... Um, that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and, uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was, it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were, you know, not necessarily outcasts, but, you know, everybody had, was, had their own you know, colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever it was, it was it was definitely a, a different edge. And uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no um, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a, you know, sponsor's area. It was all strictly in one room. And um, it was a, a group of you know, surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and, uh, and having this contest. We didn't have edges. We had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year. Tricks were being invented. We were crossing stuff over from skateboarding. And it was just an exciting time, and it will never be like that again. Here's editor of Snowboarder Magazine, Pat Bridges. Skiing and snowboarding in the 80s 
It was a scary place. Lawyers ruled the day. And introducing something new to that environment was not welcome. And he took it upon himself as a challenge. And he literally did the legwork, went door to door and sold our sport, you know. Granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow a sport, this, that, and the other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who rip, reap the benefits of that, you know. The daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report from 1985 exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against. And because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do. This is what all the fuss is about. It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off. Uh, the skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the s snowboards come down the slopes, and they'll go right in between the skiers, and we'll kick them off, and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous, because if one of these uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them. So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift. So they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full. Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart alecks. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really. Do you see any compromise in the future at all? No. No, skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's going to be more hassles, um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all. Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter. Here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton. Over time, marketing managers said, you know, I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding. And Killington marketing manager saw the name on a blacklist and they're like, geez, we can't have that. And actually, as the sport started to grow, the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars. There was a little bit of slump in the ski industry, and uh, this was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue. So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got under resorts, and that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there. As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. 
and Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew. Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like I've always... He's just considered them family, and he, he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that that you would expect, you know. He totally is, like, riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it. He's not, he's not all business. He's totally, like, loves snowboarding and loves the team, and that's just his thing. He's just, like, is so into it, and... I guess that's what's brought him so much success, you know, is just because he has genuine love for the, for the sport. He's one of the pioneers. Here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon. And you hear it all the time. It's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that, that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best-case scenario on the planet, you know, like... The dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy. It means he handled it, and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding dictating where it goes. In 1998, less than a decade after Time magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist, Hannah Teeter. He just wants the best product, and that's what we all want, you know. That's why it's, Burton's like the rider-driven company, is because they're all about input from us. You know, they want it to look good, but they want it to function more so. At first I was like, wow, he's the boss, like... You know, but, but he's just like a friend. He's just chill and great. He's just a down-to-earth guy. It's, it was, it's nice to have a boss like that. <laughs> Not many people get nice bosses, but we do. Here's three-time Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. This is, honestly, yeah. this is where I like to see Sean backed into a little bit of a corner. Sean, oh my lord! How perfect can you possibly land? I don't know. I've never really felt like it. he was a boss ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like, you know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules. Like, he's all time. <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the snurfer. But the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton. Nobody's stopping snowboarders or, you know, from looking like NASCAR drivers, you know, and putting patches all over them and selling their, you know, themselves to everybody. I mean, that's not what people want to see. And that's kind of good. I mean, there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with, I think, all board sports that we don't want to lose. And I think that... Um, that might keep things down a little bit, a little bit smaller. Hopefully it'll just sort of keep its scene. During his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts 
even allowed snowboarding. But today, it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife, Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success. I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or um, the stuff that's happened. And it's been the athletes that have made it happen and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded. Um, I wouldn't even say dreams because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio. We're beaming because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life. And they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's ouramericannetwork.org.